Hello and welcome to the Faber Podcast for May 2011. My name is George Miller, and later in this programme I'll be talking to Andrew Martin about the Somme stations, the latest in his series of novels featuring Jim Stringer, the Edwardian railway detective. Andrew also tells me about his own love of the railways, and the advantages of having a father who worked for British Rail. My first guest today is eminent developmental biologist Lewis Wolpert, who is Emeritus Professor of Biology as Applied to Medicine at University College London. Lewis has drawn on his personal experience in order to write a book before. Malignant Sadness was the title of the book in which he explored the nature of depression after suffering from it himself. In his new book, You're Looking Very Well, he turns his attention to the process of ageing, or, as the subtitle has it, the surprising nature of getting old. And his concern is not just with the science of ageing, but also with how we as individuals and as a society think about and cope with old age. Lewis, now in his 82nd year, arrived at the Faber offices for this interview on a bicycle. So I began by remarking that one of the keys to enjoying a good old age seemed to be maintaining a regular exercise regime. All the evidence is very strongly in favour of exercise and not getting too fat. Yes, I mean, those, those, are the, those seem to be the two, perhaps the only two reliable pieces of, of wisdom that, that science ha- has managed to, to glean about, about ageing, really, in terms of advice for what we can do. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Also to have a positive attitude and to eat lots of vegetables and, uh, and not, you know, and certainly not to get fat. I mean, that, that obesity is a, is a major problem, yes. When did you begin yourself to think about ageing as a phenomenon? When, how did it sort of impinge upon, upon your own life? I think it really began when I had my first depression. I think I was very anxious at 65 of having to retire. That's the first time I think I began to really think about, about old age. I really didn't want to retire. I'm not sure whether that precipitated my depression or not. Still don't know what caused my depression. But nevertheless, I certainly began to think about age then, yes. And and that wasn't then something physiological within you. That was something society was deciding on your behalf, that it was it was time to retire. That's exactly right. There's nothing that... In fact, I stayed on till I was 75. They were very good to me at University College, yes. Mm. What then prompted you to undertake this book? What, what, what was it that made you curious to Fab- find out more? Faber invited me to write the book. <laughs> and so what, 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 with, with what kind of, did you have, what, were you enthusiastic? Did you have misgivings? What was, what was your attitude when they suggested you investigate old age? No, it seemed a very good idea because I was aging and I was interested in the cellular basis of aging, which I discussed a little bit in a previous book, and it seemed a subject of great importance to me. So how did you how did you set about it? Because in the book you describe various people you've you've been to see in, in, in all walks of life to talk about their own experiences of aging. So how did you decide? Because it's it's, it's a book which goes far beyond the, the scientific. Uh, no, to begin with, I read the literature. 
That's the way I, I always do it. I made lots of notes. I read the books about aging, people's attitude towards aging, and I programmed it that way. Interviewing people really came really towards the end of the book. So what would you say were the, the set of questions that you set out with? What was it you were hoping to discover about aging? I wanted to discover, to properly understand why we age, and was there anything we could really do about it, and uh, what people's attitude towards it was. Mm. And particularly, I was concerned, being a little old myself, how one dealt with the end. Let's sort of try and define then what we're talking about. What, what are we talking about when we say aging? It's really a sense that, first of all, that you can't go on working forever, that death is on the horizon, which you don't think about uh, when you're young, and you begin to develop certain ailments, um, or many people do. I mean, when I meet my friends now, the first thing we say is, should we start at the top or the bottom and we go through all the, all the little problems? Also, you begin to notice that you forget things. Your memory for words and names is not as good as it was before. And so there are all sorts of things like that that I wanted, I wanted to understand, yes. A lot of these definitions, though, are very socially conditioned, aren't they? There's no, there's no point at which we can say, well, old age has begun. We're, we're, once we pass reproductive age, then really, we, we in terms really of evolution, we've sort of served our purpose. And we've certainly served our purpose, but it's difficult to decide when people begin to feel they're old. I didn't begin really to feel that I was aging until I was 70, 75. And certainly now I'm 81, I certainly, I've, I've got, I'm conscious of it. It's a really peculiar feature. And I suppose the other thing that I didn't know about is just how the numbers of old people worldwide has astronomically increased. And that's not due to people stopping getting old or the illnesses. It's simply that they're just not dying in the way they used to do from infectious diseases and they're living slightly more healthy lives. Yes, you, I mean, you say at the beginning of the 20th century, major causes of death were communicable diseases and sure. that has completely changed. Yes, absolutely. No, no, we're, we're doing very much better. But of course, then we may be creating other challenges such as the quality of life for those years of, of prolongation? Well, the, the key Greek idea for me is Tithonus. If you remember the story, his lover Aurora had asked Zeus to let him live forever. And Zeus had said, of course, but what he didn't do is to stop him aging. And he became absolutely desperate. And I think those people who want to live a very long time, that's fine. But beware about the effects of aging. And aging is wear and tear. And it's very difficult to stop it. And the idea that there will be some clever molecular biology that will stop us aging, yes, it may increase our lifespan. But I don't really believe in the long, even in the long term, it will be pro proper. On the other hand, let me make a key point. The one group of cells in our body that don't age are our germ cells. And we don't fully understand how they manage to do that. Well, one of, one of the striking things that you say in the book was that even if all disease could be eradicated, that would only lead to, I think it's at a 10 to 15 year uh, prolongation of life. Because as you say, when the damage outweighs the repair, then exactly. we're inevitably going to degenerate. I'm afraid so. I'm afraid wear and tear does lead lead us <laughs> into the damage of old age, yes. So how much do we understand about the the, the wear and tear, how, or at the cellular level, how things begin to um, to let us down? 
I think we're at the beginning of understanding the wear and tear of the cell levels. Of course, it's genes becoming abnormal. Well, of course, they give rise to cancer, but there are many other. It just damages cells. They don't divide as well. The cells, you lose a lot of cells. The cells kill themselves because they're unwell. And so there are a whole lot of processes. And of course, the cells have do have repair mechanisms, but nevertheless, they don't take you to a very old age. They're really at their best when you're young and before you've reproduced. Once you've reproduced, evolution doesn't give a hoot about you as long as you've looked after your children. I guess one of the, the major fears that people have about aging is dementia, of losing their, their mental faculties. Was, was that your, your finding that that, that comes that very high? That is my feeling, let alone my finding. Mm. I didn't know much about dementia, and it shocks me beyond words. And someone recently told me that his mother had Alzheimer's, and she would go to a group of Alzheimer's patients once a week. And then she said, I'm not going to go anymore. And he said, why not? It's a different group every week. She couldn't remember a single person. And the people I've spoken to who have had to deal or care for Alzheimer's or that I've read about, it's absolutely terrifying, just terrifying. And despite its prevalence, I think you say there are as many as 800,000 people either suffering from Alzheimer's or another form of dementia in the UK yes. at the moment, it gets much less research money and therefore time spent on it than, for example, cancer. I know. There is less time and it's a very difficult problem. There has been some news on the radio today, actually, funny enough, about them making some progress with it. But these things are usually oversold, rather like stem cells. And so one must be just a little patient and to see. Be wonderful if there were progress. But it's very difficult because once you've got Alzheimer's, you've lost. Cells have died in your brain. And I think replacing those is a very, very difficult problem. There are nonetheless things one can do to lessen one's chances of dementia. Is that is that the case? There are there or are there things which or is it a case of falling into a, a category where the statistical likelihood is less? Well there are certain genes which make it more likely that you're going to get Alzheimer's. I'm not sure that there's much you can do to prevent it. They do say that using your mind and being active and exercise will help. I just, I just not, I, I, I'm not persuaded by the evidence, frankly. Because the incidence is so high, it, it's terrifying. At what age does it become not not a likelihood? But what, what what age does the prevalence markedly increase? I think once you're over sixty-five or so. And I have a nice thing because I see my psychiatrist month to month. In relation, I literally see him for five minutes, and it's just to check up how I'm doing. And I was forgetting a lot of things, and I thought, oh gosh, I'm getting dementia. I'm going to ask him about it next time I go. And the next time I went, and of course I spoke to him, and on, the, on my way home on my bicycle, I burst out laughing. I'd forgotten to ask him. <laughs> I'm afraid I do forget things. I mean, I mean that that, raise, that that sort of humorous point raises a serious point, really. The the attitude one takes to to aging, as you were saying, you were suggesting earlier, does well, does better, play a part. The better your attitude to aging, the longer you will live and the happier your life. Yes. So you need to take a positive attitude towards it if you possibly can. There is evidence for that. Mm. Yes. Of, of course, as you say towards the end of the book, a lot of people live in poverty and Absolutely. live in or in situations where their care is 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 much less than ideal, and of course that that is going to severely condition their um their their attitude to their own aging, isn't it? I think people when they 
get old, no longer have money, no longer have someone to care for them, have to be in a care home and so forth, and recent handling of people in care homes has had terrible publicity, and there are terrible stories how badly some of them are treated. And it's a very, very worrying business. And I am absolutely committed to the idea that if you're old and you're unwell and you want to die, you should have the right to choose a very peaceful death. In other words, euthanasia for me, I'm absolutely for it. If the person wants to choose to die, they should have that right. Do you see any signs that we are coming closer to to sharing that view as a society? I think it's getting slightly better. And, you know, they don't prosecute people who have taken a relative to Switzerland or somewhere like that where euthanasia has been used. So I hope, I'm not confident that in the next few years it will really change, but I think the law is becoming slightly less aggressive about it, yes. Now, part of the book was also looking at the sort of cultural, historical attitudes to ageing, and you you often go as far back as the Greeks and, and trace that. Did you see common threads appearing there or is is there a, is there a disjunction between our attitudes and those of earlier centuries to to the old i don't think so if you go back to some of the greek <laughs> poems about aging they could have been written they could have been written yesterday and oscar wilde of course is wonderful with the picture of dory with the picture of dory and gray and the struggle bugs in gulliver's <laughs> in gulliver's travels I think there are ancient Egyptian texts which could have been written yesterday in describing ageing and what it's like to be a bit decrepit with old age, yes. But in terms of how society reacts to the old, cares for the old, is is that something you saw shifts in? I don't know how well, and I'm not terribly good on how well old societies in ancient times treated the old. I'm not sure they treated them terribly. And there are some primitive societies, those people who get their living, you know, by going hunting and so forth, they may sort of help the old to die or actually put them to death because they can't contribute to the society anymore. I think people's taking a serious attitude to try and understand aging is really, really literally in the last hundred uh, years or so. So I think that people have always wanted, and there are many myths about how one can avoid old age, but they are nothing more than myths. Now, there are some scientists I know who would claim that we can... That's Aubrey de Grey. Yes, we can arrest or reverse the processes of of ageing. What do you make of those claims? I think that's highly optimistic to put it mildly. <laughs> I think it's not it's not a reality. But, uh, you know, I may be proved to be wrong. You see, I think really to change aging, you would have to fundamentally change the way cells behave. That you'd have to go to the egg before the embryo develops and make all these changes. And who would take the risk of the damage you would do to that? But I, I think the reality is it won't happen. And you have a chapter on the very big business of the, the anti-aging treatments and cosmetics and and surgery which which really strikes me as a misnomer it's not it's not really anti-aging is it it's just it's it's just concealing the effects it's it's preventing looking old and women spend men some men too spend an enormous amount billions of dollars billions of pounds on trying to prevent looking old and i'm afraid this is an evolutionary thing we men like young women (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) and despite all the sort of 
pseudo-scientific claims that, that come in the packaging. Mm. There, there doesn't seem to be that, anything substantive there. No, there doesn't seem to. But B- Botox seems to help a, a, a few people. Um, but the evidence on the whole is not encouraging at all, no. Mm. And, even, and even Botox isn't really reversing anything. It's just sort of holding something <laughs> at bay, isn't it? <laughs> keep out of the sun and keep healthy. Mm. Yes, and so good diet is important. And you write about... Um, the effects of reduced calorie diet, which is, which is a rather unappealing prescription, but it does seem that tests on animals and also in, in some there parts of some Japan. Of the, yeah, there's, there's some evidence that those people who really are eating less do live longer. And there are, there are Japanese in Okinawa, where they're traditionally eating and are rather uh, uh, more underweight, do live longer lives. But you've got to be careful about not eating too much um, because that can also do damage. So, and in certain animals, certainly reduced diet does lead to them living longer. Mm. How happy they are and what other illnesses that we just don't know. Mm. Because we're not talking here about sort of hitting the, the ideal calorie target bang on. We're actually talking about a fairly significant reduction. reduction. I mean, it's 20% or something. Yes, exactly that. It's quite tricky. Mm. So it's, it's probably quite a, it's it's quite a miserable quite a existence oh, where you feel hungry most of the time. You hungry most of the time, I think. Yes. So, what? Why? Why in Okinawa? Is it a function of poverty, or is I it cultural? No, I think this is a cultural thing of the of the Japanese that they tend to eat much less there. Yes, and they do live longer. Yes. Is it possible to say what what the max at the moment what the maximum human lifespan yes. is? Yes, I can tell you exactly what it is. There was a woman called Calment who died at 100, a French woman, 122, and the oldest man reliably her record is 115. Because a lot of the a lot of the time, it's quite difficult to substantiate oh, these these claims. Very, there are myth upon myth about things, but both of these are reliably. And the Guinness Book of Records has said there's no area that they know of where there are more false claims than about someone living to a very old age. Can we learn things from from looking at these sort of exceptional people who who make it to a hundred and beyond? Do they tell us anything about well, the, the body? Are, there are genes which are associated with, with old age. There's an insulin-related pathway in our body. And if you can block that, you will live a little bit uh, longer. But in general, you see even identical twins don't live to the same age. You know, there's no evidence. On the whole, it does look like genetics determines about a half, a third to a half of how long you're going to live. So genes matter, and there are abnormal genes that make you age prematurely. But it's quite a tricky business, no. So the genes will determine what the maximum possible span is, and then other environmental things will determine what the actual span is. Yes. Sex is something which occurs in the book, so to speak. You talk about the the fact that there are myths about the end of, of yes, sexual desire and performance. But the, ev- the biological evidence is, it doesn't apply to me, I regret to say, <laughs> but the biological evidence is that you can go on with sex to a very old age. Women can't have children over 70, I'm even much over 65, but you can have sexual relationships well into your 80s, yes. And that, the idea that you become impotent as you grow older is simply false. And that's, that's a very prevalent myth, very isn't prevalent it? Myth, absolutely. And it's an excuse for, for those of us who, who have these problems. And, and also, they're, they're, I mean, if one judges by one's email inbox, you know, yeah. we think that most of the pharmaceutical industry is actually concentrated on erectile dysfunction. And that's the main thing that they're concentrating on 
of all the the, the problems of, of age. Yes, that is true. But uh, it, 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 it's a problem, and, but it doesn't seem to be. The evidence that I read in the books is that it's not, so, not that serious. So, Lewis, where do you think the, the emphasis in, res, in research going forward to, to understand ageing and its, and its complications should... I know ageing isn't, really isn't really a medical condition. It's a, it's a collection of phenomena which occur at a certain stage in life. But where do you think the research should be focusing? The research will continue to focusing on what goes wrong with cells as they age and trying to find ways to prevent it. With things like Alzheimer's, they will try to find out what happens is a particular group of amyloid proteins whose origin needs to be identified, get into the brain and kill a lot of cells. And there needs to be research because the dementia is a very under-researched area and people need to understand much more about the origins, uh, which may help to prevent. Curing will be even more difficult. And in society at large, what, 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 are, what are the things that, as a result of writing this book, you feel are the sort of policy priorities for, for age? The main policy problem is to help the aged have decent homes and decent care and that they shouldn't be in poverty, that they should be well cared for. And I think this has been grossly neglected by governments. And even there are claims that in the health service, there's quite an ageist attitude, you know, why do we want to bother with someone who's so old and they're going to die soon? So I think there is a really major issue, both socially and economically, about looking after the old. Yes, ageism is really the prejudice that, that gets talked about least, isn't it? So it's, it's, it's the one which I suppose it's still acceptable socially to joke about in a way that, that other forms of prejudice aren't. No, ageism is a problem. And as I say, the recent news and evidence for poor care in nurse homes and in the NHS is something that's very serious. And we need to be able to find ways in which the aged can continue to live in their own home and are well cared for. But it, it, it does seem, looking at the media, that the the trend is running in the opposite direction. We You know, we think of cases of, you know, female presenters being taken off air and even male presenters and and looking even looking at politicians you know that you talk about Mingus Campbell and how he was he was sort of lampooned in the media for being sure. too old at 64 now you go back to the time of Gladstone then you know 64 <laughs> relatively young but but it it does it does seem it's a sign of aging but it does seem that politicians are getting younger you know generation <laughs> by generation you may be right and and I'm not sure there's much we can do about it but I think it's also worth mentioning age UK the major charity, which does a great deal to do the things we've been talking about, that is to prevent ageism, to make sure that the aged are well looked after. Excuse me, but it's a very hard problem. And presumably legislation can only go so far because we're dealing with, with attitudes in people's, in people's heads. How do, did you think about any ways that those could sort of be encouraged in a, in a more positive direction. Now, just how to handle this in terms of local councils and money and taxes, I'm out of my depth. Sorry. But I, mean, you, I think you mentioned at one point that the old themselves sometimes do themselves a disservice by kind of, sort of almost conforming, not conforming, but allow, allowing the stereotypes to apply to them in ways they, they, they needn't. Maybe the aged don't take enough positive attitude to people looking after them. Uh, you know, I've never really explored this, but you may be absolutely right. And I think one really needs to take a quite a militant stand if people are ageist with respect to you. Oh, here's, here's a positive thing, which mm -hmm. I learned from your book, that, that studies of happiness yes. suggest that happiness peaks at the age of 74, yes. presumably, presuming other, thing, other things are sort of functioning reasonably well. There is well. evidence that if you look at happiness really worldwide, 
is about its lowest when you're about 45 and it peaks <laughs> when, you, when you're 70 and a bit over. So the old aren't on that unhappy. Many of the old are really, are really happy, yes. They like their pets, their grandchildren and the peace and quiet, yes. Mm. Uh, any little nuggets of wisdom you would give to other people who well, are in their 70s and 80s? Take exercise and don't eat too much. And remain as positive as you and can. And remain as positive as you can, yes. And get a pet, possibly. <laughs> a pet greatly helps. <laughs> a carer is even better. <laughs> Lewis Walpert. You're looking very well. Is that now in hardback? My second guest in this podcast is Andrew Martin, author of the highly successful Jim Stringer series of detective novels set in the railways of Edwardian England, a series which began appearing almost a decade ago with the Necropolis Railway. Andrew has now reached book seven, in which Jim, now a detective sergeant in the railway police, leaves his home in York for the front lines of the Somme as part of the North Eastern Railway Battalion, nicknamed the Railway Pals. But the men turn out to be far from pals. When they go to the front, enmities and secrets from back home go with them. But before we got on to Jim Stringer's latest adventure, I wanted to find out about Andrew's own fascination with the railways. How had that started? Uh, well, my father worked on the railways all his working life, starting at uh, 15 or so, or no, starting after his time in the army, actually, so he was a bit older than that. But he worked on them for 40 years. Uh, until taking early retirement in the mid-80s, when Mrs. Thatcher was trying to get rid of as many railway men as possible. He was in the offices at York, the headquarters of the northeastern region of BR, head office, a building that has just been converted into a five-star hotel. The office in which he spent 20 years is the Whiskey Bar, where over 500 malts are available or something like that. Because he worked on the railways, we had free railway travel as a family, and I had it as long as I remained a dependent of his, which I was for a long time, because after university I was a law student and continued being in full-time education until my mid-twenties. And I had free first-class railway travel as well. And I'd had that since I was a, b a boy, and when I got to be 13 or 14, I would think nothing of going off to London from York on my own, on, on the train. And I think that's where my connection with railways was really formed, because it was a very dreamy experience. First of all, just to be able to go to London as easily as other people in York would go into the centre of York um, made you feel, you know, like you'd really cracked it. You know, you're a sort of aristocrat of the, um, of the working classes, if we were working class, except that it was, a first, as I say, a first-class uh, ticket. And... Um, You'd be in a compartment, sometimes you'd have it to yourself, and um, it was especially good coming back from London very late at night. There used to be more trains late at night than there are now, so you might get on a train at 1.30 in the morning back from London, and you'd go to sleep, and then you'd wake up and there'd be a man, big businessman, sitting directly opposite you and staring at you, and then you'd go to sleep again, and he'd, the next station, he'd be gone, and somebody else would be sitting there. You wouldn't know where you were. They'd park up the train. It seemed to be shunted off into sidings for a 20-minute stretch. You know, it was a very leisurely progress back to York at that point uh, of the night. And uh, you'd look out the window and you'd see a great big factory brightly illuminated. You'd be crawling past that. And then you'd go through dark fields for half an hour. Suddenly another town come up. And, and it would be... Um, 
quite a hallucinatory sort of experience. So you had a sort of sense of the, the romance of the railways, even in a, in a post-beaching world of, of, of diesels and, as you say, sort of getting close to you yeah. know, the age of Thatcher. Yes, there was still some romance left, even though they were cutting back the railways, and even though, as you say, it was all diesels. But, I mean, you had the Deltics, which were very big diesel locomotives. They were the only um, locos that I bothered spotting. <laughs> and, in fact, I, I had um, my notebook, which, in which I s set out to collect train numbers, only contains the um, names of Delta, because they were named. That was the other attractive. They were named after either regiments or racehorses, which is exactly what locomotives should be named after. And there were also more locomotives around in those days than, as opposed to just multiple units, which were really very boring. But there used to be a little diesel multiple unit that you could get in to go, to Scar to go from York to Leeds. And if you sat at the front of it, you could see the driver in his cab. And there was a window behind his cab and, of course, a window to the front of it as well. So you could sit right at the front and see him driving at very close quarters. And I used to get on the train to Leeds on a Saturday afternoon especially to watch that, to see the track unfolding before me. But on a sunny day, that was a, that was a very, um, you know, it's a very good view. And did you have an early interest in the history of the railways, going, going further back to the, to the age when Jim Stringer is around? I sort of developed that later on. I was more interested in just the atmosphere of railways. I used to like hanging around in York Station. I'd go there and just sit on a seat and smoke a cigarette. I liked the trains, especially at night, and... If you were in a compartment and you had it to yourself, there'd be a dinner switch. You know, it's like you could design so you could adjust the mood very precisely and play about this with this switch and have the light very low and perhaps do a bit of reading. You might have a Sherlock Holmes story with me or something, a can of long life beer and a bag of crisps, and uh, that was ideal. And I liked stations at night time particularly, and I just started looking out of the window and... Only later did I develop this interest in railway history. And I still don't know half as much about railway history as people probably assume I do, or at least all, or they assume I should do. And the history is just a pretext for um, making up the fiction, as far as I'm concerned. So did you have a light bulb moment when you thought, aha, the railways are a, a perfect setting for the kind of books that you wanted to write? How did, how did that come about? I think the railways suit me in that I like atmosphere. I also like having a certain type of working man speaking. And the railway men were, tended to be educated working men. So they were quite articulate, but they weren't hyper-articulate. And I, I liked pitching the dialogue at that level. So it worked out quite well that I eventually did begin writing railway novels. But the reason I began what triggered it was that I used to write a column in the Evening Standard about the underground. And in connection with that, I was doing something about Waterloo Station, and I read about the 150th anniversary of Waterloo. And mentioned in, in the account that I read was the, uh, was the detail about the Necropolis line, which used to carry dead bodies down to Brookwood Cemetery in Surrey, the largest cemetery in the British Empire. And I read about how there'd been a special little station for this just outside Waterloo, run by the London Necropolis Company. And so I thought that was a great setting for a novel. That novel became called The Necropolis Railway. And uh, since I've written it, a couple of people have said, well, just because it's a line carrying dead bodies, wh why does it, in a very smoky and, and um, 
blighted part of uh, Edwardian London. You know, why does it have to be a crime novel? I mean, I never thought that answered itself. What else is it going to be? A love story, you know. So it seemed that this, the, the setting and the subject seemed to dictate a crime novel. So that's where this series came from. You didn't set out with a, a grand plan for a series at the start. There was a, a germ for the first novel, and it, it went on from there organically. Yes, I mean, I didn't... I doubt very much that my editor would have, if I came to him and said, yeah, I want to write nine novels. Yeah, he'd have balked at that, but it just it just grew out of that first one, really. Tell me where Jim Stringer came from. Well, he is the type of railway man that I mentioned earlier, in a sense, and, and like my dad, really, and like his friends. I mean, my dad did go to a grammar school, but he left it in his mid-teens. He was there during the war, so in a way he didn't have a particularly good education. He once told me about how he had so many weak teachers, all the men left behind who didn't go off to fight, and they would get the, the, the boys would get very angry with them. They would actually throw sandbags at them because it was um, you know, there were sandbags protecting the windows. So I don't think he would say that he was being very well educated, but he was bright, and I liked that particular northern tone of voice. So I wanted Jim Stringer to be northern. I wanted him to be pretty bright, but not an intellectual, and I wanted him to speak in a certain way that I associate with Northern Railway men, a rather laconic way that I admired, and I uh, had those voices all around me all, all my childhood. So basically that's where he came from. And in the first novel, The Necropolis Railway, he had to not know and not work out what was going on with the setup on the Necropolis line. So therefore he had to be quite naive, young and naive. And as a detective, it has to be admitted, he's not particularly, you know, he's not remarkably insightful. He has a grasp of human nature. He gets there in the end. He's dogged. He's not Sherlock Holmes. So that dictated us, and I also like the idea of him being socially gauche and not quite knowing how to behave when confronted with people higher up the social scale, because I like the kind of social comedy that would come out of that. If someone is joining the series at this point with the, the song stations, can you fill in a little bit of background about what kind of career Jim has had so far? What point has he, has he reached by the time this novel opens? Well, first of all, I should say that it's not in any way necessary to read the books in order. I once saw a man in Dawn's bookshop in Marleybone High Street picking up one of my books, and he just was toying with it for so long. I couldn't, in the end, I couldn't resist, and I walked up to him and said, look, I think that's a, quite a good book, you know, I think you should buy it. And he said, um, yes, but uh, it's a series, and I haven't read the first one. At which point I, I came out as the author. I said, look, in a, at the beginning of all the books, the previous life of Jim Stringer is very briefly explained in a paragraph, which is in fact always one of the hardest paragraphs to write, but nevertheless it's all there, so you don't need any more than that. Essentially what happened is that he got his start, as he would, would people said in that time, on the railways at 15 or so, working on the northeastern railway, because he's from Baytown, which is what the locals of Robin Hood's Bay, as it's more commonly known now, called the place. So he's from a little town on, on the North Yorkshire coast, gets a job on the North Eastern Railway working at Gromont, which is these days part of the preserved steam line of the um, North Yorkshire Moors Railway. So Gromont was a pretty country station but very quiet. One day a sophisticated man from London meets Jim on the platform and, and lures him down to London. So Jim abandons his job at Gromont where he's working as a porter 
which is not what he wanted to do, because he wanted to be on the footplate, but that was the only job he could get. And he's offered the chance to train for the footplate down in London, working as he will, he'll end up working on the necropolis line, although he doesn't know that initially. But you start, if you want to be a driver, by cleaning. So he works as a cleaner in the Nine Elms engine shed in 1901, I think it is. That's his beginning. And then he goes, in the second novel in the series, The Blackpool High Flyer, he is a sort of trainee fireman, what's called a past cleaner, where you're allowed on the footplate, you're allowed to fire, even though technically you're not yet a fireman, you're a learning fireman. He does that job in that novel, but um, immediately after that novel he comes a cropper because he accidentally runs an engine into a wall in an engine shed in Sowerby Bridge outside Halifax. That doesn't happen in the novel, the Blackpool High Fire, but it's explained at the beginning of the next novel, which is The Lost Luggage Porter, and um, it's explained there because that is why Jim then becomes a railway policeman. It's the only job left for him to do on the railways. He's banned from... He was sacked as a footplate man, and that was what he really wanted to do. And he always maintains that the accident was not his fault, and it probably wasn't his fault. But nevertheless... So he's sort of banished from the footplate, and there's a kind of wistfulness then hanging over him for all the rest of the books in which he is operating as a railway policeman, which was not such a um, specialised profession in those days. I mean, there were thousands of railway policemen. Half of Britain was railways, so it wasn't an unusual job at all. And there was a police office in York Station, as indeed there still is, but now it's a tiny one, but there was a bigger one on the main platform, London platform at York, and so that's, that's his base. And for all the novels after the Lost Luggage Porter, he is he's working as a railway policeman, but um, a plainclothes detective. And uh, of course, in some stations, he's abandoned that because he's gone off to fight. Now, in, in some series of detective fiction, th there isn't a strong sense of time going by. It's almost like some detectives get frozen in some mm. eternal present. That's very much not the case with, with your books. Time is, is very definitely going by. And so I wondered, as you saw the Great War approach, did you feel a sense of trepidation or a sense of relish as you knew you would, you would somehow be incorporating that into, into Jim Stringer's life? I knew, I knew that if the series carried on long enough, it, would, it was coming up. And I, it, it, I looked at it with some relish because I've always been you know, morbidly fascinated by... First World War, and the First World War is quite ra uh, logical that that a war story should arise out of Jim's situation because most able-bodied men who worked on the North Eastern Railway, which was the biggest railway of the pre-grouping railways before the big four companies were created in 1923, most of the able-bodied men did go off to fight, and, and, and many of them worked in some way on railways on the Western Front. So there's a story waiting there to be written. As far as I know, I mean, I'm certainly not aware of another novel that is to do with railways on the Western Front. Can you say a little bit about that, that background sketch and maybe the, the part that railways did play in the First World War? Well, if we take the, the battalion that Jim joins, he joins the 17th Northumberland Fusiliers. Uh, they were known, became known as the Newcastle Railway Powers because a lot of them came from Newcastle, but quite a few would have come from other northeastern towns and, and certainly some of them came from York. They trained for a long time. I was amazed at how long they spent training. Part of their training was done at Hull Docks, uh, Catterick as well, and uh, they would then did some sort of sentry duty on Spurn Point, which is an episode in the novel. 
So they were full 18 months training before they were sent off to France. And they got there in time for the Battle of the Somme. When they were in reserve, which meant that they were not in the first push, but they were involved on the first day of the Somme. At that point, doing what was called sapping mainly, which was basically extending, trend digging. There's a lot of digging. There's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of digging. And that was the basic work of the railway pals, so not really railway work. But as well as that, they did a variety of railway jobs, building railways, and it's very complicated because the, they were split up into different units and they would do some work on standard gauge railways, some work, I think, on small gauge railways. Although I must admit that I have bent the truth a bit in the sense that mostly the people who worked on the narrow gauge railways on the front, which is the subject of the novel, were the Royal Engineers. But I think that they did take people from other units. So it's quite possible that people from the from Jim's battalion would have ended up, I think, working on the, um, the narrow gauge railways. The narrow gauge railways didn't really start to be built until 1916, and they really came into their own the following year. So my story is set in, in 1916, after the, the Somme campaign. There were small-gauge railways carrying weapons to the front at that point, but the network was not extensive. But I've used that as a little window to create my own imaginary little network. To find out exactly where these narrow-gauge railways went would be I suppose just about possible if you spent years in the archives of the Royal Engineers. But they would put down the railways one day and take them up the next. That was the whole point. So I've exercised quite a bit of poetic license, but it is essentially rooted in historical fact, I, I hope. Yeah, I mean, that's a question I often ask historical novelists or novelists with a historical setting. What, what ground rules they set in dealing with the, the historical record? How do, they, how do they turn it into fiction? Well, I think that you, you can't have sensational historical events happening that just didn't happen. You've got to know that you are within a, a historical framework, however approximately. But then within that framework, you do become more and more liberal in what you will invent. I mean, you, in a way, you realise that you can get away with but more than you probably thought you could. In other words, you're not usually pulled up, although that is never likely a possibility with a historical novel. People don't usually take you to task and say, this could not have happened because of X, Y, and Z. They don't know. Most people who read the book will not know. So you're a bit freer than you might think. But you have to make a, maintain an authenticity of, of tone, and if you stray too far from the actual events... You can't do that. One problem I had with writing about the Western Front was um, what level of stress are the men under? Are they constantly freaking out, and panicking because they're being bombarded all the time? Or were they often quite relaxed? And what percentage of the time were they in danger? And what were they not? And I don't think you could... You had to get that approximately right, the ratio right, and you couldn't have them just swanning about having a great time. But at the same time, I think it was true that they weren't in immediate danger of their lives all the time. So that was one balance that I had to try and strike, and I was aware of, of trying to get that right. I mean, there were days when you were in the front line on the Western Front when nothing happened. 
Well, we trim with nothing happened, actually, I think. So I've got scenes in this book, quite relaxed scenes. Just because I like, I like that laconic, as I said, tone. And I like the contrast between those moments and, and the high excitement of the, of the actual um, fighting. So that was something I was concerned to try and get right. I mean, the trouble, another trouble with the First World War is that you have like a map, but the map moves as the position of the front moved. So you've got two levels of complexity. And I had to get that approximately right. Jim had to be in approximately the right geographical area at the right time. That seemed to me to be fairly fundamental. And I guess Jim Stringer's voice is now really very familiar in your head, but you get a, a new situation like the war, and so you get new slang, new vocabulary. How sort of historically faithful or, or strict are you when it comes to, to that kind of thing? Is that important to, to get right? Yes, I mean, I'm very aware of Edwardian slang, which I, which I like, because it's quite formal. It's a bit more oratund than, uh, than the way that people speak today. And I'm very fond of certain Edwardian expressions, which I'm trying to bring back. For example, well, for example, people would say, um, I was too tired to go out, and that's all about it, meaning that's the end of the story. Whereas now you might say, that was the end of the matter. Mm. But I like, that's all about it. And then when they didn't have anything to say, they, and they were telling us, recounting, instead of saying, I didn't say anything, they'd say, um, I kept silence, which I think is a very good expression. So Jim quite often says, I kept silence. That's a good punctuation point in a conversation. So whilst I would, don't think I could ever write a novel with very flowery, ornate language, as, as in high Victorian middle-class language, then, but um, I think Edwardian language suits me in the sense that it's just slightly more correct and formal. I mean, even the, the whole public discourse is more attractive, I think. It's more elegant and certainly is wordier but um, also just more of a consciousness of language. Language was perhaps just more important then because there was less, you could do less with a visual medium, so you relied on that. And if you look at language of advertising, um, you know, men's coats, it would say, it is indubitably the case that our garments are superior in the following respects, you know. And I like, I like that. I like the, that formality clashing with... Um, Violence, because the other thing about writing railway novels, historical railway novels, is that everyone probably thinks it's going to be like Thomas the Tank Engine. It's going to be cute. So my villains, you know, will wear suits and ties, because every working man did wear a suit and a tie. So it's that contrast between thuggery, of which there was plenty about, no question of that, uh, with, um, with what will seem like an old-fashioned formality to the reader. And, and that, that violence or that range is reflected in the language, isn't it? Because as you say, there is a sort of oratund, rather elegant, ornate Edwardianisms. And then there's some very, very Anglo-Saxon plain speaking, yes. isn't it? I mean, people have taken me to task about the swearing in the books. They've said, they seem to think that uh, working men at that time would not have sworn. Well, I say to them, you know, when, when do you think that people began to swear? What, what do you think, 1976? When? I, I know for a fact that there was a lot of swearing amongst that, those kind of men at that time. One, one way I know is that I went to the public record office once and looked at some criminal confessions, confessions that had been written from prison or from custody by crooks. And um, they were trying to sort of, um, I don't know whether they were, I can't remember precisely what 
the context was, but they were applying for remission of their sentence, or it was a mitigation of sentence before sentencing. And so they were trying to appear to be, to sort of exculpate themselves. But, so therefore they wouldn't write out the swear words in full. But they were, these accounts are full, these first-person accounts, of, of references to swearing. So it would be, I told him, don't be such a mug, give him the F gun, F on a line. And these accounts are actually peppered with this, or B in a line, meaning uh, bloody. But a lot of Fs. So that just proved to me that, uh, that they swore. And it's just that you don't read the, the swearing in... Uh, first of all, there hardly anybody wrote novels about working class people at that time. It was a rare thing to do. And if they did, they wouldn't put the swearing in because it wouldn't have been allowed. It doesn't mean it wasn't being said. Now, th this regiment was, was known as the Railway Pals, but I think as someone says quite early on in the novel, they, they, they aren't actually pals, and they're, they're, they are a, a tight group of, of men that you write about, but there are incredible tensions in, in all sorts of directions. Can you say something about the, the group that you take to the front? Well, it's meant to be sort of group jeopardy, in the sense that you've got a small number of, it's about half a dozen men, who are, always end up in the same unit, in a way that probably they, they would have been split up, but so there's a bit of contrivance there to keep them all together. But um, they have to look out for each other on the Western Front, but at the same time there is needle between them because of uh, what happened before they went to the front when one of their number ended up dead. So they, so they basically go to the front and they take a secret with them or, they, or a mystery with they, them. They take a mystery with them. And the trouble is that they've got to rely on each other and trust each other on the Western Front because they're operating these little um, trains and there's numerous ways in which you can get killed. You can get shot in the ordinary way or you can have the cargo that you're carrying, the artillery, you have the train tip over, which they did very often, and then you're, it might blow up and kill you. Or you might be hit by a shell uh, but it was very hazardous, and they were operating these trains at night, trying not to let smoke coming out of the, you know, the, the chimney of the engine, and they were under a great deal of stress, and they had to be very careful about which lines they ran down at certain times and how close they went to the front, and they had to be very careful about handling the shells, had to be very careful in driving the engines, not to, not to go over bumps because the track would be very dodgy, and not to go too fast over them, but then again you have to get back quickly. So it's a stressful situation, and they don't quite trust each other because of something that happened beforehand. Plus there's all the usual animosity that would exist between any group of men, based on class, based on different levels of education, and the fact that they'd all been different grades of railway men. So I think, that, I think there would have been tension between those kinds of men anyway, and... There's just more because, because of what happened, because, because the death has been involved. But I think that um, another thing I wanted to get across about the tension was the fact that there is quite a lot of black humour in their exchanges, and I think that's how it would have been. And I think most First World War novels that I've read, at least the bad ones, have no humour in them at all. But it's not possible for men to coexist without humour, I don't think. Not, not, not in such stressful circumstances. I think even in such stressful circumstances, as I say, I don't think it was stressful absolutely all the time, but even under stress, I think there would have been, an, I think that the keynote would have been a kind of dark humour. All my instincts tell me that, but, I mean, it's, of course, it's difficult to prove, but I didn't want it to be all heartfelt philosophical musings about the futility of it all. There are men who are just there, they don't really know why they're there, 
and they're doing a job, but they're trying to do it with the best of their ability. I tried to avoid having too many grandiose statements in it. Were there many attempts for you to, to draw upon of what it was actually like for these, these railway men at the front, or is a lot of it the, the work of imagination? There is quite a detailed history of that battalion, but it's frustrating in the sense that it never really tells you what you want to know. It doesn't tell you what they did for social life, for example. It's just full of rather baffling accounts of how they moved from one camp to another and were split into different units or, and, and rejoined. And they, It's like a sort of amoeba. It kept splitting up and then rejoining them, and then some of them would amalgamate with another battalion. And in the end, I just sort of gave up trying to follow it, really. But the basic life of the regiment, of the, of the battalion, is described in that that, that, that history. So that was that was the first um, source. But the actual feel and the smell of it, those those had to come from imagination, presumably. That came from my imagination. Yeah, I mean, I went to um, the town of Albert, which figures in the book, which was just behind the front, and I spent a day there. Of course, it's now very peaceful, too peaceful. It's extremely quiet, and. Uh, I just wandered around the streets and tried to imagine, looking at the countryside around, which I suppose is much the same as it would have looked on a very cold winter's day, and trying to just extrapolate from what's there now to what would have been there before. There's also a very good museum there. I walked through that on my own, and it's sort of arranged in a, in a bunker that I think was created in the Second World War, actually. But you walk through this passageway, which is full of First World War memorabilia from the Western Front, and they've got all these sh the sound of shells screaming in as a continuous sound effect. And if you're there on your own, as I was, it really is quite frightening. It was really deafening. And so that was, that was very useful. Um, but then I just... You know, I've always read First World War novels, and so I did have a drawn of the novels, I must admit. But, um, no, just, just make it up. Andrew Martin. The Somme Stations is out now in hardback, and all the previous books in the Jim Stringer series are available in paperback. You can find out more about them on the Faber website at faber.co.uk. While you're there, check out the Faber blog at thethoughtfox.co.uk and visit the podcast archive, where you can hear interviews with many Faber authors. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.